All right, all right, all right. Welcome back to the Misfit Nation. Last episode, we got to hear from Dr. Luke McLeese and Brittany Thornton Homko and spoke about their ventures. Thank you for being on and keep us posted on your ventures in the future. Our next guest is Charlie Jones. He had an aha moment when a close friend was lost in combat and saw a need to preserve memories. So with that, he started the Dear Calvin Project. So without further ado, let's get Charlie on the show. Hello, Charlie, and welcome to the show. Hey, how you doing? Thank you so much. I'm doing pretty good. How are you doing today? Oh, you know, it's another glorious day in Chicago. Oh, Chicago. I guess it's still cold there. Yeah, it uh, it gave us a bit of a pump fake the last couple of days. It was like 60 degrees and now, you know, back down to 30. So that's you're always and never surprised in Chicago. (laughs) I bet. Uh, Are you from Chicago originally or did you just settle there? Yeah, no, I, uh, I'm originally from Arlington Heights, Illinois, a uh, suburb of, of northwest suburb of Chicago. And okay. that's where I enlisted out of. And I actually, I'm still in the suburbs now. I just say Chicago because everyone knows who that is. Everyone knows the, the big name. Right, exactly. They don't know Lake County and stuff like that. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe Julia. So tell, tell us a little about, a bit about you, your story. So, like, from whatever point you want to start, including your service your job in the service and how it brought you to where we are today. Okay. Yeah. So I, uh, I enlisted, actually I, I joined in the, the late entry program when I was a, a junior in high school in 2002, um, you know, in high school at the time, nine 11 happened. So that was on everyone's mind. And, and uh, I didn't really know what I wanted to do as far as studying goes. I always wanted to go to college, but I wasn't sure about what to do. So I figured I might as well, you know, make, something of myself while I'm figuring out the next step. So I ended up picking, you know, the Marine Corps. Uh, I left for boot camp on July 20th, 2003. And biggest culture shock I've ever experienced up to that point. Um, yeah. So, uh, I mean, I was, uh, I enlisted as motor transport operator, which is the 3531 uh, in the Marines. And, uh, so I went to boot camp 12 weeks, then combat training for three weeks in, at Pendleton, then to Fort Leonard Wood in Missouri for job training. And when we were leaving, um, the job training set at Leonard Wood, I went back to Pendleton at first Marine regiment. There was eight of us that came from there, but two of us ended up at first Marines and everyone else went to truck company. And actually, Myself and this other guy, Sam Lott, we ended up going to Fallujah three weeks after we got there. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. And that was, that was right at the beginning of uh, RCT-1's takeover from 82nd Airborne. So it was, it was OIF-2. It was just the start of OIF-2. Um, the guys that were in my platoon, the more senior ones, had already deployed during OIF-1. So the guys that were newer, we actually ended up staying for 14 months instead of seven because the other guys had already done a tour before. Um, so three weeks in the fleet, get on a, get on a plane, drive, fly out to, to Kuwait, get all the convoy. And then we convoyed from, um, I think it was Anaconda, the base Anaconda in, in Kuwait up to Fallujah, to Camp Fallujah, where we established the, uh, area of operation takeover from 82nd Airborne. And that's pretty much where I was for the next 14 months. Uh, a lot of road time, 
lot of driving. Um, when I first got there, I actually ended up being in a security element for our headquarters company because I was one of only two people that was licensed to drive an ambulance. So, oh, yeah, and that was that was an interesting that was an interesting one. Um, but yeah, yeah. So I, I ended up getting augmented there. I drove an ambulance for like three or four months at the beginning of our deployment, which was easily the hardest job I've ever had. Um, we were constantly going in and out. This is when two one and one five were really heavily fighting. Um, you know, and the election too in, in America was going on at the same time. So there was just all it was very chaotic in, in, in Fallujah. Um, and yeah, you know, uh, it's, it's an interesting experience to say the least, you know, it, it, it's, uh, my, my gunnery sergeant, my first gunnery sergeant, his name is Stephen Deal, told me when I first got there, and I think it's probably the best description I've ever heard was that war is days, weeks, and months of boredom followed by moments of sheer terror. Which is a pretty accurate description, in my opinion. That's <laughs> so. Got back after uh, 14 months, and went to went back to Pendleton to to uh, First Green Regiment at Camp Horno, and, and I was then augmented to 29 Palms as an instructor controller at Mojave Viper, um, which is one of the training evolutions that units in the Marine Corps have to go through in order to to qualify for deployment. So went there and mostly teaching like, you know, vehicle checkpoints, setting up, you know, uh, stopping positions, taking detainees properly, dealing with the civilians, because those were really big issues at the time, especially after things like, you know, Hadifa and um, Abu Ghraib, stuff like that. Yes. It was one of those really hot topic issues at the time. So. After that, I went back to Pendleton and spent the rest of my time there. Uh, I picked up sergeant before I got off of active duty, and I came. I, I applied to DePaul University, which I got into. So I went back to Chicago after my four years of active time. Um, after about probably six, seven months of realizing how boring life is, not having being in the Marine Corps <laughs> anymore, I uh, and and how stupid things like working out was that I was complaining about when I was in. Um, I, I went back into the SMCR, the Select Marine Corps Reserve out of Chicago at 224. And I was there for the next probably five or six years. Uh, oh, yeah. Then I separated. And after that, I, uh, I, I just, I mean, I got out and wrote out the rest of my uh, IRR time in the contract and just uh, kind of made the transition to being a, a full-fledged civilian again. Um, the, uh, the project that I'm working on right now was a response to a request actually originally. So it's called the Dear Calvin Project. What I do is I create video tribute testimonials for families of people who've been killed overseas so that they have some kind of um, remembrance of who the person was my first mentor, a guy named John Davis was, and one of the guys that I deployed with, um, was killed in Afghanistan in 2013 uh, by an IED blast during a convoy. And his son was four years old when he died. So he has 
very few memories of his dad and that's just going to get worse over time. Elena, his wife, we were all friends. He, he, she reached out to a couple of us that knew him really well and, you know, and said, hey, would you guys mind writing Calvin a letter? You know, just talking about who John was, you know, as a, as a Marine, because she could speak to the husband and to the father, but not to the Marine. And as I'm sure you know, you know, the service becomes a lot of who we are in our identity. Um, so I, you know, I, was, I said, yeah, I'll definitely do that. I sat down to do it and I just could not write. I stared at the computer screen for like 40 minutes the first time I tried to, and I just couldn't think of what to say. And I was also going through a lot of really bad issues myself at the time. Uh, and I wasn't handling stress very well at the time either. So I ended up just putting it off and putting it off and forgetting about it eventually. I got cleaned up four years later. Uh, and I was talking about John on the anniversary of his death and it had just hit me that I hadn't written that letter yet. And I don't know about you, but I've said, I'm going to do this a lot of times in my life, but that one was really important to me. And it really got to me that I hadn't done it yet. So I called Helena the next morning and I'm like, Hey, I'm so sorry. I will get this done for you by the weekend. I promise. Uh, and I did, but while I was writing it, and it was, it was like four pages back in front. And I was, when I was writing, I, I felt like it was too one dimensional. I mean, uh, uh, you know, a letter is great because it's tangible and you can look at it as many times as you want. You can always come back to it, but it doesn't give you all of that nonverbal communication that you would see in a conversation with somebody. So yeah. and I've given several speeches and things like that at friends' weddings. And I'm very deliberate with what I say when I say it. To make sure that I'm not being confused for another for what I'm saying is not being confused in any way. Um, so I called her back and I was like, hey, I know I got the letters on, but do you want me to record myself talking about John or, or, or reading the letter or something just so Calvin can see who it is that's speaking, you know, and, and she thought that was a great idea. And when I, I just kind of off the hand said, do you think anybody else would want to do that? And she said, yeah, you know, what? I bet I could find a couple of people. So I called a few people, she called a few people, and by the end of the following week, we had eight people, including myself, committed to going to Atlanta to film interviews about John from the people that knew him in the service. So I ended up maxing out all my credit cards and buying or and borrowing some money from my family. I flew everybody out to Atlanta, including myself, um, put us up in a hotel for two nights, and we, we cranked out... Uh, we cranked out the interviews. It was uh, it was a it was a really cool experience, but it was a very interesting one at the same time. Uh, you guys to finally get that get that uh, story off your chest. Yeah. And onto the media. Yeah, you know that's the one thing that I really didn't I didn't see coming. Uh, it always started as a uh, as a request for Helena and Calvin. You know, and it was most important to me for for Calvin, so he could know his dad and who his dad was, but. Yeah, I when I started talking to the other the other guys about it, you know, all the people that were in the video, um, and for myself, I started to realize how how little was actually processed, how little of that loss was actually processed. I mean, John was a really important guy in my life. Now, I'll tell you one thing, and I make no bones about it, I hated him when I met him. I have never hated anybody in my life the way I hated him. 
when I met him. <laughs> but it's part of it's it's important to me that that is also known, you know, and, and then I communicate that to to Calvin, especially because he 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 needs to know how our relationship turned from me hating him to him being one of the most important people I've ever met. There's a lot of emotions in between. And it's a very important, you know, kind of arc. So I, you know, I uh, I didn't like him at first, but he did become <laughs> a very important person to me. And I didn't realize even for myself how I really, how little I really processed it. I got a phone call. Uh, I was at a Blackhawks game uh, watching hockey and I got a phone call and it was from one of the former guys in my platoon, Dave Wilkinson. And he basically, he never really called me. Um, so it was kind of strange, but once in a while he would, you know, say hi or whatever. And I kind of ignored it at first cause I was in the United center. I couldn't hear anything, but he called me back like right away. Uh, and so I was like, okay, something's gotta be up. So I went out to the concession area. I was in the middle of a stairwell and he, uh, he's like, I'm like, Hey Wilkes, what's up? And he's like, I'm sorry to have to tell you this, but John died yesterday. And I, I don't know. I don't know anybody's first name. We never really refer to ourselves as first names. Like, who the hell are you talking about? Who the hell is John? And he's like, Sergeant Davis was killed yesterday. And I might, I mean, everything just stopped. You know, I couldn't, I couldn't believe I heard that. And, uh, and that really got to me. Um, I, I was so stunned by that. He had to actually ask me if I was still there because I didn't say anything. And I was like, yeah, you know, all right, I'll, I'll call you tomorrow. Thanks for letting me know. I sat back down. I don't remember who played the game. I don't remember what time we left. All I remember is on the way home, my dad, having seen that I didn't say anything for like the last two and a half hours, asked me if I was okay. And all I said was Sergeant Davis was killed yesterday in Afghanistan. And, and that was the only thing I said. And it took pretty much every ounce of my composure not to just completely lose it on the way back. Uh, it, was a, it was a very, that was the worst call I've ever gotten. So. In 2007, my best friend was uh, back over in Iraq. We deployed together. We were there with you at the same time. We were with uh, Big Red One okay. in Ramadi at the same time you were in Fallujah. Yeah. And uh, he, Green Listed came to the 101st Airborne Division. And in 2007, during the surge, he was taken from us. And I got that call. I was at a, a Kush assignment where it was just me and my colonel and 300 civilians. And I got the call that he had got taken from us and, and I couldn't do anything in the office. So I just walked outside and punched a wall and just yelled as much as I could outside to try to, I guess, process it yeah. as much as possible. It's a rough thing to go through. Yeah, it is. So I understand. Yeah. And, and you know, and I'm, I'm really sorry to hear that. I mean, you never want to, you never want somebody to, to, you know, everyone stops when you hear KIA over the comm. Everyone does. Or when you hear that, when you get a phone call or whatever it is. I don't care how many times you deploy it. You know, uh, it's always a very difficult thing to deal with that that kind of loss, especially when you're so close, especially deploying. Like, you get to know people at such a higher level. You know, you have every stupid kind of conversation you can possibly have with people. You know, all of the, the dumbest things they've ever done. You know, it's but it's, you know, you become a, a family. And uh, it's terrible to have to go through that so sorry to hear that appreciate it so um after you made the first video then that's and after that is when you decide to make it into a project or how did that come about so okay yeah so like we went to atlanta because i had a friend named dave pickett um 
He's not like in Hollywood per se, but he does a lot of finishing color work for very high-end productions that you've probably seen. Okay. Um, he actually, I told him about the idea and I knew that he was, he, he did things with videos and I wanted to know like how I should approach it. So when I asked him about it, he said, that's a great idea. Let me, let me see if I can, I can make some calls. So he called a couple of people he knew. He got uh, a cameraman and a crew. He got a director. He got um, a sound engineer. He got an editor and he also helped produce the first video as a gift for for the family so the video that's online right now uh that's on youtube and, and and everything is uh it's actually it's like an hbo level of quality because of the, the the amount of resources that went into it and that's the only video we've done to this point um but this is something that i'm you know i hadn't intended on it being an actual business until i saw the effect it had and how much it changed my perspective on gold star families you know i i knew john and helena pretty well and i didn't know how hard her road was until we started really talking about it and when i went when i first came up with the idea i actually spent a long time researching to see if there was something like it because i just figured there had to be already and there wasn't there was nothing like that nobody the next closest thing was like you know, it was like booths in major cities where you could stop by, pay a fee, and, and have your life story recorded by you and put on a server. And that was the, that was like the next closest thing, basically. So, you know, I I, I guess in that way, I, I wanted to try and create this like new kind of video where we can leave the family, especially the children, with with a sense of who their parents were are were you know when, when who, whoever they lost and in the families to, to honor their memory and remember them right right so we ended up going down there for that and uh so now i am up in chicago just trying to trying to get this thing off the ground so it's a 501c3 nonprofit. i don't charge the families for anything at all i i you know I uh, strictly based on donations and, and fundraising. Um, and that's my, my, here's the one thing too, is like when I separated from the Marines, I lost a lot of my identity with that. And that's what, one of the things I mentioned about identity earlier, like I, I completely lost who I was and that caused a lot of problems for me. And I didn't really know what it was that was causing the problems for a long time until I really started digging into it. Um, and this venture i guess you could say it, it sort of revitalized that purpose in my life it's given me something to really push myself to to do and to be about so in that sense it's almost kind of saved my life too showing your sense of purpose and many many veterans have that same feeling you have once you hang up them boots and camis the last time and you run into that wall the next day because you don't have a sense of purpose anymore. Yeah. You don't have to go home in the morning to go work out. You don't have to make it to muster formation. You have to just do whatever it is to survive at that point. And you find now finding your sense of purpose, this will help you propel you forward and help you to help others find their purposes. Exactly. Yeah. And that's amazing. Uh, 
I'm probably I'm going I'm to share your name and contact information with uh, my soldier's mom. We lost him in, on December 31st, 2010 in, in Afghanistan as well. Please do. That would be awesome. And, uh, I would love to talk to them. She's in Missouri. It took me five years to finally meet her in person. In 2015, we met down in uh, Gatlinburg and drank a few drinks and <laughs> got to know each other. And we've been close ever since. So we went to a bar. Nobody ever goes to a bar in the service. Come on, man. No oh, way. Hey. That's not. <laughs> That's such a foreign concept. <laughs> It's a strange thing. The scuttlebutt says you shouldn't do it. It always does. <laughs> but we do. Yes. Yeah, no, I would, I would, you know, uh, that so, would be great. I, 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 I'm looking for people to do this for, you know, and then I want to, I want to do this for every family I possibly can. You know, hopefully I can get to a point where the donations are to the point where I can just do this for people without having to worry about, you know, fundraising and things like that. But you know, that's just not where I'm at right now. It's still kind of in its infancy. So, um, but I will, I would love to, I would love to do that to, to talk to them. Awesome. And since you are looking for donations, I've seen your websites under construction. How do, how do people reach out to actually find you and donate to you if they aren't like in your network already? Uh, the website will be up by the end of the week. I had to have that rebuilt. Uh, last person I had, that was going to do it, started working on it. And basically all I did was tear it down and then quit. So I had, <laughs> I had to, uh, I had to get somebody else to, to finish up the website, but it'll be up by the end of this week. Um, and, and there will be information on that as far as that goes. And, and if anybody wants to contact me about any part of the Dear Calvin project, they're more than welcome to at C Jones at your Calvin project.com or okay. um, can also join the Facebook group or reach me through Facebook as well. Um, I'll respond to every message I get. It may take me a minute, but I will definitely get back to anyone who wants any information at all. I'd be more than happy to talk to anybody. Awesome, and I'll put that on, once I uh, make this into a show, I'll put that on the show header as well, as well as the Misfit Nation Facebook group page, so they can share it outside of the nation as Thank well. Thank you, I appreciate that a lot. So how did you get linked up with Bunker Labs? So I came back. Okay, so uh, August last year, I moved to Texas. I was supposed to work with this guy, the one I had just mentioned about the the, uh, the website. Uh, I went. I moved to Texas, right outside of Dallas, to, to work with this guy, and, and ended up yeah, I ended up falling apart. So I came back in August, and I had to take a break for a bit because going to Texas it put a, a huge strain on me financially and mentally and emotionally, especially the way things ended up. So I needed some time off. But what I was thinking about, I had talked to some people from Bunker Labs before and I remembered the name. So I went on their website because I knew that I, they had a vague idea of what they were doing. I just hadn't really seen it in a while. Um, and I, the first thing I saw was the veteran residence programs taking applications. So I just filled it out. You know, I uh, kind of not really expecting to get anywhere with it. Um, and you know, I got an email saying you have been selected. So, so that's how I, I, I got to be part of that group was, uh, was when I applied for the veterans and residents and they've been awesome. They really have been great. Yeah, they are a great organization. I love what they have done to help build the veteran entrepreneur network community, build the tribe. It's really helping everyone out, help each other. Because anytime you go on there, you can ask a question and someone on there 
will have advice or know a person that can give you the advice to help you on your path to success. So it's a great out, great outfit, great organization. Yeah. And you know, I will say this too, cause I'm part of a lot of entrepreneurial groups like on Facebook and stuff and, and nobody has the kind of response percentage that that bunker labs does. Everybody's there. Everybody there wants to help. They really do. And they do actually do what they say, which is a very rare phenomenon when it comes to groups these days online. Um, but yeah, no, they've been they've been awesome. The resources, the classes that I've been able to to take and stuff like that, all been very informative. Uh, and just like you said, making connections. There's a, it's a great group of of people that all have a, a similar purpose, you know, to to continue moving forward in their lives. And and as a veteran, you know, it's it's nice to have that comfort level with people on the outside of the service. Yes, very very much so. Was it? You already feel like they're part of your family already since they are veterans. So you wanted you you feel comfortable talking to them anyway. So it's it's pretty awesome. The way they yeah, do. it really is. The only unfortunate thing now is because of COVID, everything is remote, so you don't get to meet up. <laughs> you don't get to do the actual musters like yeah, you used exactly. to do. So it's a great organization. Are there any other veteran organizations that you have uh, reached out to to help you during this? Yes, uh, there is Memories of Honor. It's run by a, a woman named Amy, Amy Coda, and she's been a huge help to me just in the way of she is another non that is another nonprofit and they do fundraisings for for families. They do like uh, hikes and, and runs and stuff like that to raise money for for families like that. And uh, they have a great, a great organization, but she's been really great about you know, having time to help and, and offering advice and things like that. Cause I, the nonprofit sector is slightly different and there's some things that I really needed to, to learn the hard way, I guess you could say, but it was, it's nice to have the guidance <laughs> to get through those days because it's like, otherwise it gets very stressful sometimes. But, uh, yeah, no, she's been wonderful. A couple of the people in, in the, the group that I'm a part in and DIR, you know, um, Robert Dabney with Vet Park, he's been awesome. He's become a good friend. And uh, some of the other guys, Pat Moore, uh, they're with uh, More Home Solutions, I think it's called. Um, they've all been very helpful and and open to to whatever they can do to, to help me, which I've always been very appreciative of and I always try to reciprocate. That's awesome. That's, that's so and the final question I have for you, if you can give advice to an aspiring or transition veteran or spouse, what would it be? Okay. Um, for someone that's transitioning, I would just say give yourself time to acclimate. Don't be too hard on yourself out the gate. Um, and And really look for what you want your life to be about and and try not to focus it solely on your, your military career. Uh, it's something that I did and it caused huge problems for me. Um, trying also to avoid bad habits. Like for example, I was a very bad alcoholic for a long time. And that was one of those things that I was going through that was really hard. Um, trying to avoid things like, those kinds of ways of dealing with stress, you know, try to find something more constructive than that. And that seems like an obvious thing, but it, you know, veterans are very not apprehensive, but we don't usually like talking about 
our issues except with other veterans you know and and when you have a veteran that has like a substance abuse problem like i do i didn't talk to anybody so it was always just trapped in the prison of my head um and being you know upset at why i wasn't moving forward and not moving forward and this is a vicious cycle i guess you could say for somebody that is aspiring in business learn everything you possibly can um never turn down the opportunity to meet someone new and never ever burn a bridge unless it is absolutely necessary outstanding great advice charlie it's been great talking to you go ahead and give uh, your links out again so the audience can uh, write them down again so how to get in contact with you and how to be, become part of the church absolutely uh so the the website is www.deercalvinproject.com uh, again, it will be this weekend. Um, and the if, the way to get to, in touch with me directly is either joining the Facebook group, which is called Dear Calvin Project, or, uh, you know, sending me a direct email at cjones at dearcalvinproject.com are the ways to get a hold of me. My contact information is also there, you know, as far as phone goes, and I'll take calls as well. So I'd love to to find more people to help with this, you know, this venture. And, and uh, I really do appreciate you having me on here. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, thank you for being here. Enjoy the rest of your day <laughs> in Chicago. You, you too. Take care. All right. Have a good one. Well, that was a great interview with Charlie. Our second guest is Dennis Schrader an Army veteran who saw a similar need to that of Charlie. He started the Price of Freedom Foundation, where they also will be preserving the memories of those who have made the ultimate sacrifice for their country. So without further ado, let's get Dennis on the show. All right. So go ahead and uh, just give us a brief story of how, from uh, whatever point in life, through your service, to where you are now. Okay, super. Well, I was uh, born into a Navy family in 1956. Uh, my father was a machinist mate in Navy in Oakland, California. Um, he bounced around uh, to a variety of uh, bases and sea assignments, mainly on the West Coast, uh, until 1970 when he retired from the Navy. He uh, settled in Tacoma, Washington. I was uh, entering high school at that time. I thought I wanted to go into the Navy. In fact, I did want to go in the Navy. I joined the Sea Cadets while I was in high school and participated with them for all four years of high school and applied for ROTC scholarships because my dad said, uh, having spent his career as an enlisted man, he says, you'll live a, a better life if you can be an officer. Um, so just pay attention to your NCOs. And so I, I took his advice. But the Navy said uh, I have defective color vision and therefore I could be a Marine. And at that time, uh, that was not what either I nor my father had in mind, uh, even though I have a great respect for Marines and have a lot of friends who are Marines uh, today. Uh, the Army provided a scholarship to uh, you know through ROTC at the same time, and that's the route that I chose. Uh, entered the Army in 1978 as a Medical Service Corps officer um, and had assignments at uh, 
course, with the the Army Medical Department's um, uh, headquarters being in San Antonio at Fort Sam Houston, did training there several times, um, had assignments at Fort Stewart and Fort Lewis, Washington, um, had a, sh- a short break in service when I stayed in the reserves and drilled as a member of a MASH hospital, uh, uh, returned to active duty, uh, did seven years recruiting doctors for the Army uh, in Philadelphia and Orlando, Florida, uh, back to Fort Lewis, then out to Hawaii, uh, and that wrapped up 20 years of service. I retired uh, to Tacoma, Washington. Eleven years later, I was asked to come back and did a two-year retiree recall at Fort Knox. Um, Got a position with uh, Chamberlain College of Nursing, later university, that uh, brought me to Middle Tennessee. And uh, a couple of years ago, that uh, job went away, and I had the time to pursue the idea for the nonprofit that I now run called the Price of Freedom Foundation. Wow, it's a pretty good journey right there. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> Outstanding, actually. And so, so with that, uh, what led you to start the Price of Freedom Foundation? Well, it really was a, a, a variety of things that kind of built upon one another. Uh, I have uh, attended a number of funerals over the years, and it just seemed to me that a lot of the kids that were there um, really weren't going to remember much about the, the person. And that I felt that, especially for those who have paid the ultimate price, that their kids deserve to know more. Um, so that kind of was uh, kicking around in my, my head for a while. And when I was, uh, it, during my period between originally retiring and the retiree recall, I remember seeing articles in traditionally left, uh, left-wing editorially magazines like uh, men, uh, GQ and uh, Esquire. They're kind of men's magazines that I liked for the styles uh, and, 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 and the such that they would have in there. But they're, they were always kind of uh, anti-military uh, in, over the years. And I saw some articles that they wrote that were actually in-depth and very good about a, a handful of people who had fought and died in our wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. And I loved that. But I always was thinking immediately was, what about all the others? You know, what about the, the soldiers and the Marines and the airmen that aren't being um, recognized? And what about their families? And so that was what really kind of was the, the, the thoughts behind it. The, and this just kind of percolated for a long time. And I guess I just have had the experience of uh, having a, an idea kind of sit and, and stew, if you will, for a long time before I start talking about it and, and actually starting taking actions. The, what, what prompted me to actually take action was a Marine friend of mine, um, a retired female Marine Corps drill sergeant who worked for a sister school uh, when I was working for Chamberlain College of Nursing. And I was telling her about this idea that I had that we should try to 
find as many people that knew the phone as possible and interview them, collect those stories while, while they're still uh, relatively fresh in people's memory and create a biography that then can be written and given to the family uh, so that they have something that can be passed on to future generations. And for me, I was just thinking, hey, this can't be an original idea. You know, this, this is, there's got to be somebody that's been doing this, and I just don't know where they are. Uh, so I, went, I ran it past her and a couple of other uh, friends that I knew from, from the military, and um, just to you know, get some feedback. And she said, love the idea, Dennis. Now get off your ass and make it happen. So, so that was really the genesis of, of taking action towards this. And that was uh, about two or three years ago that uh, we had that conversation. And since then, I've done what I can. I mean, it's like I knew that I had, I had this idea. I knew that uh, I wanted to honor those who paid that price to a degree that's higher than what is currently done. Um, and I knew that I would probably get a lot of people that would say, hey, we, we like the idea too. But you know, I had, I had no background in running a nonprofit organization. I had no background in uh, writing or publishing. I had no background in uh, video or doing documentaries because part of this that we want to do is to tell the story both in print and in video uh, forms. Um, but and I said, I don't want to be the guy that's that at the end of my life says, man, I wish I would have tried something about this idea that I had. So um, a couple of years later, now I've got a few volunteers. I got a bunch of people that are following us on Facebook um, and we are slowly putting things together. So, we still have a long, long ways to go, uh, but uh, I believe it's this is a, a worthwhile endeavor. I'm definitely committed to giving all that I am and all that I have towards them. And um, hopefully others are going to uh, say, hey, I, I want to participate and I want to help too. Well, definitely. This is a great endeavor. And uh, as soon as I spoke to you the other day uh, with our chat, I spoke to my soldier's mom, he passed in uh, December of 2010 in Afghanistan. Uh-huh. And I asked if anyone ever did this for her. And uh, she said no. So she'll probably be reaching out to you here soon. And I'm sure I'll, I'll reach out to the rest of the platoon to get them involved to get the story out there. That would be great. We would love that. I mean, we've got we've got uh, a lot of different ways we can go with this. But our, our concept is that we want to have... Uh, Everybody that that has anything significant, you know, had significant interaction with them uh, to be able to sit down uh, probably through a Zoom meeting, at least uh, while we're still in this pandemic situation. But we want to record that. We want to film that because, yes, we want to create the written uh, word. But we're you and I both know we're in a video centric society. Um, much more so than a logos or written word uh, society anymore. And I just believe that by getting that story out to a wider audience um, and from the perspective of a third party, that the, 
the sense that most military survivor families have that uh, their loved one is forgotten and that their sacrifice isn't honored, that typically hits around six months to a year after the service member passes. I think we'll be directly addressing that because if we can keep those yeah. stories circulating and going and uh, new people seeing, you know, this person, um, we don't want to make uh, Superman out of out of uh, regular Joes, but every person has something, has a story to tell. Every person had hopes and dreams, had had uh, you know a vision for the future that you know didn't really come to pass. But they did do things while they were with us. They touched people's lives. They they uh, succeeded at some things. They struggled with others. We want to tell that whole story because I think it's I think it's worth telling and it's um, you know, worth remembering. Absolutely, I agree with that. And uh, with that said, you said six months. It took me five years to actually meet his mom. So okay. I, I met them while they were deployed. I went from Korea right to Afghanistan, basically while they were already there. Met them. I lost him. I stayed in country in the fight. Came home and then PCS. Got ready to deploy again in PCS. So my clock never stopped moving until basically I retired right. to finally meet her. Right. And since then, we've become real close friends. She's family to us. That, now to get this for her would be great. I think I you know I, I don't have much data on what this will do for uh for for soldiers like yourself who were the 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 battle buddies so to speak of of the fallen uh the data that i got came from Ushu's, the uniformed services university of the health sciences who did uh completed one long-term military uh survivor uh family grief study and they were uh in the process of doing another but they did a study of sixteen thousand families from uh 2011 for a 10-year period, uh, which represented all uh, active duty uh, military deaths during that period of time. And it was that study that showed it was almost universal that these families had this sense of that their loved one was forgotten um, in that time frame, that six to 12 months. And of course, you know, it's going to be different for, for each uh, each person, but and. You know, of course, the the exceptions to that are, would be like the Pat Tillman's of the world, their fam his family, you know, that get that national attention. And his story's always uh, out there. That that's probably never going to go away. Uh, and that's okay. Uh, but it's like I'd like to be able to address the the regular jokes that that you know, don't get that kind of uh, press. Yes, sir. That's that's the best. That's that's exactly right. Because those who were not in the spotlight prior will never be in the spotlight unless they get something like what you're doing out there. Right. So that's awesome. So, so how many, uh, how many have you done so far or have you accomplished? The most? We are actually working on our very first one right now. Um, okay. I've met through a, um, another contact on LinkedIn, a gold star daughter. Um, this, this story is, um, about a, uh, a Navy machinist mate, uh, Alfonso Amos. Uh, he was, uh, he had been in the Navy for 18 and a half years and he, um, was lost at sea off the USS Kitty Hawk while it was sailing between Japan and Korea in October of 1998. Um, and 
he had a son and two daughters. And uh, one of the daughters, Jen, is the person I was put in touch with. And at the time, she was 10 years old and her younger sister was only five. And so they had actually been trying to piece some things together themselves to get a better picture of their father and, and the life that he lived, especially for the younger sister, because she had no memories of, of their dad at all. So we're in that process right now of identifying people who knew him. Um, we have identified, uh, of course, family members and one person who was his best friend while he was in the Navy. Uh, but uh, I'm having a real struggle with trying to get the uh, records right now. Um, the, the Navy only provided uh, her with the uh, certificate that identified the, the casualty, you know, the, the, the casualty notification of what went, you know, the time, etc. They did not provide the family with any other records like you know, efficiency reports and those records of assignments and schools and stuff like that, which would really help us if we, uh, uh, in our search to find uh, his shipmates and others that may have known him while he served. Uh, so uh, that's kind of what we're uh, where we're at with this process. For each story that we tell, we believe it's going to take about a year uh, to to number one find everybody, reach out to them, complete the uh, interviews, and then have those transcribed and provide all that to a writer who would then write the biography. And then, of course, go into publication and the like. So it's a, probably about a year's worth of, of fairly intensive effort uh, that's going to go into each of these. It's a lot of investigation, a lot of research, too. Yes. Went to, especially since 98, I'm sure a lot of his uh, shipmates have also either passed on or just moved away so far from the Navy that they're hard to be found now. Exactly. Now, I think it's easier today, though, than it was uh 10, 15, 20 years ago, because so many people are connected uh, through social media and and the like. So I think it's going to be a little bit easier task to do this that uh, now and moving forward than in the past. But you're right. I mean, that's the further into the past we go, the, the more uh, challenging it will be from the standpoint that people people move. And of course, those of us that spend time in the military know that very well. <laughs> How often we do this. Um, but and then of course, you know, some some folks are going to pass away themselves. So we really would like to get as uh, these stories uh, as close to the time of the service members passing as we can. But we also know that you know, there's uh, there's value in telling these stories, no matter how long ago it's been. So that's exactly right. So uh, how did you wind up with Bunker Labs? I um, honestly don't know exactly how I became aware of them. I think when I was first getting started with uh, with this, one of the first things I had to do before I could even form the organization was to find people who would be willing to be on the board of directors. And so I was looking for networking events and opportunities in the greater Nashville area, and Bunker Labs came up on my radar for that. 
And that was how uh, I got to, uh, to attend a couple of their meetings back pre-pandemic uh, while they were uh, doing, I think, monthly uh, events in, in town. And uh, yeah, they're, they're a great group. I, I, I really like them. I met, it was actually through Bunker Labs that I met uh, some guys that do um, documentary films and really asked some probing questions that kind of shifted how I'm, I was thinking about how we wanted to proceed with, uh, with our interviews, because I was thinking to myself that, you know, if we do a bunch of different stories, there's going to be some that are going to kind of say, Hey, this is really different. And that maybe this might be something that uh, could be made into a movie or something like that. And so I was thinking uh, along those kind of lines and, when I would talk to people during these these networking events, I'd mentioned that, and these guys were saying, "Okay, let's let's chat." And so we had a conversation. They asked me why video or film at all, and you know, I started to talk about how I knew that I, I'm a book lover, so I read a lot of books. But it's like we watch a lot more video than we we do uh, reading, and so okay, well, well, why why are we wanting to, to get this if if it's for the family? And mainly for the family, then you know why not just stick with with books? But I was saying, well, we need to we need to help get this story into a wider audience, and so it made me go through that process. And they asked, finally asked, well, why uh, if you're going to do this, why wait two, three, four years uh, to make a decision on which stories you want to put into video, and then go back and ask people to do it again? So I said, wow, <laughs> you're right. So let's just do what we can now to get the, um, get the recordings, get the, the, the content that we can then make a decision later that says this is what we want to do. These are the, the stories we want to tell and how we want to tell them. And um, so that just made a whole lot of sense uh, to us. And um, that's, that's what we're doing. So. Similarly, I, when I'm talking to folks, I say, if you've got ideas, I am not the kind of person that is as a locked in stone kind of mentality. I'm always open to different ways to do things. As long as we keep in mind that the, the bottom line is honoring the fallen and serving their family by telling their story, that's the only thing that we're really locked on, how we do it. Uh, is totally um, up to better ideas. Outstanding. And I, that's what I like about Bunker Labs. You can go on there and just ask any question and someone's going to help you no matter what, you know, no matter how far gone you are from the military. Once you put that D in front of you, you're a U.S. military veteran. It's like one big tribe in the Bunker Labs that'll come out and help you. And they can organization for that. If you could uh, give any advice to an aspiring transition veteran or spouse thinking about starting either a nonprofit or a business, what would you do? Um, I would say do your homework as far in advance as you possibly can so that you're better prepared. Um, uh, I would say that, number one. Make connections because connections are going to help you whether it's a for-profit or nonprofit uh, business. Um, if you have the, the ability to uh, go through their um, uh, 
their online program. So you're doing the planning uh, up front that, uh, you know, do as much preparation before you take the uniform off as, as you can, because once you're, once you leave the security of, uh, of the service and that, um, um, and that regular paycheck, you know, that's, that's a big, big step. Um, and uh, not everybody's, uh, you know, responds well to, to not having that security. So, um, I would say that that would be my my number one advice. Awesome, that that's great advice. Uh, the best preparation is to do it well before you start thinking of that word transition. Formally, uh, so a great great piece of advice for them. So, if you want to just go ahead and tell people how they can get in touch with you, how to get involved with the organization, go ahead and do that. Sure, now. absolutely. Well, our Number one, our website is uh, www.priceoffreedomfoundation.org. Uh, you can go there. Uh, that's where you find information about us. We have uh, some information about volunteering. Uh, we have links there for families that want to uh, have us tell their loved one's story. Uh, we have a, a way to donate to the cause there, and we have a, a, an online store for merchandise with our logo uh, on it. Um, we have a, well, you can call me directly. And uh, my number is 615-389-1867. And uh, my, I would say you can send email uh, to info at priceoffreedomfoundation.org. I also have a direct uh, email uh uh, myself, but my last name is spelled a little different than most, so uh, it doesn't translate well to the audio. <laughs> um, and then, then we also have um, our uh, our uh, social media presence. Uh, we are on Facebook, uh, on in- Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube, all at the Price of Freedom Foundation. And we'd love for you to, to uh, find those, follow or subscribe um, to, to those, because we do have a little bit of different content on each of those, uh, those, those forms. And as volunteers, I mean, we, you mentioned research. We're definitely going to need people to help us do research. I could definitely use somebody who uh, has video editing uh, skills so that we can uh, put these interviews uh, together into into video that that's going to be interesting for uh, for people to, to, to watch it'll catch their attention through social media and make them want more um, I could definitely use uh, uh, somebody who's got graphic artist uh, skills and abilities on our store we just have uh, our logo and which I'm really proud of our logo but you know I see other organizations out there that have these uh, these uh, graphics and shirts and sayings and man, I get jealous because it's like, man, I wish I had something like that. Um, and uh, we could pretty much any skill that a person has that they feel they have some time that they would be willing to partner with us to, to help us move this forward. We can, we can use your, your help. Uh, so just reach out to us and um, you know, we'll, we're glad to have you. 
Awesome. Thanks for being on, Dennis. Thanks for taking some time away from your family right there. And uh, I look forward to talking to you in the future once you get your first stories done and see how things are going at that Excellent, point. Richard. Thank you so much. And yeah, we'd love to be able to chat with that uh, with that uh, family of the uh, of your buddy there. So uh, hopefully we can begin telling his story as well. Outstanding. Thanks, Thank you, Richard. Have you a good day. Bye-bye. Well, that is another great episode. Charlie and Dennis, you were amazing to talk to and learn about your stories and, of course, your passion. We appreciate both of you for taking the time to come on and share your stories. On our next episode, we will talk to a few more veteran-owned business owners and see what their adventures are and their passions and, of course, their story. As always, thanks for taking some of your time to spend with us on The Misfit Nation. Be sure to hit that subscribe button and share the link as much as possible. We appreciate you. Till the next time. As always, be humble, stay hungry, and keep hustling. We are the Misfit Nation.